Welcome to the Studio Rats podcast, episode three, hopefully going live on June 26, 2010. In this episode, we're going to be talking about recording guitars, and we also have a couple listener questions. My name's Matt McCabe, and joining me is Jeff Elbel. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Matt. I did a little math, and the last episode that we did was 1,044 days ago, or two years, 10 months, and nine days. Oh, those were the good times. The good old days. Are we supposed to admit that? I think we're going for realism here. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honesty is the best policy, after all. So yeah, I think we're really on a roll here, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I think we can probably get another episode out in probably a year or so. I, th- I think that'll be a, a pretty safe estimate. I think so. Actually, of course, we're hoping to do it more frequently, but we'll see how things go. That's right. Yeah, set the bar low. Uh, what's that? Under-promise, over-deliver. It's the axiom of, uh, of the stock market world. And that's uh, the kind of logic that we subscribe to here. Uh, so how are things going? Uh, they're going well. Uh, it, was a, it was a slow spring, but it's been a really busy summer for performance. So um, I haven't been working on my studio tan as much as I typically do. But after next week, when we're done with the last of the weekend warrior, or the week-long warrior touring, it'll be back to weekend warrior touring, and the weekdays will be spent here at my console. So I've got a few records to finish, and uh, a couple of them have hard deadlines fixed to them, so I'm actually looking forward to getting back to that and knocking some things off the table. Great, yeah, check them off the list. Yeah, the big news here is, I don't know if you've been following my uh, Twitter or Facebook feed, but my uh, Euphonics MC Mix controller that I use for for mixing songs, it developed a crack on the, on the top panel, and um, I was a little bit worried because, um, of course... Avid purchased Euphonics, and with all the changes over at Avid, with them, you know, absorbing, kind of getting rid of the name, uh, the Digit Design name, I was a little bit worried about what their stance was going to be. Since the, you know, when I bought the the MC Mix, of course, it was Euphonics was the company, and now it was owned by Avid, so I didn't really know what to expect. And I was about a year, maybe a year and a half out of the warranty, but. I, I really felt that it was a actually a, de- a defect because it was my second unit, and the the first one had an issue where the the uh, the top panel was kind of warping right between two faders, and that's exactly what happened here. But the warp kept going, and it eventually cracked the case. So it seemed like it was probably a manufacturing defect, and I shipped it back to Euphonics, crossed my fingers, and it just came back the other day, and they haven't contacted me about you know, getting a credit card number or anything. So it looks like they, uh, they did the, did the right thing and replaced it free of charge. And yeah, I, well done. yeah, I was very excited. I, I thought that was, I was impressed. Avalon didn't treat me that way. Oh yeah. No, that's they right. <laughs> was that your M5 that you returned to no, that? Actually, that's my 2022, my, okay. uh, my class A preamp. And so what was the damage on that one? Uh, you know, it could have been a lot worse and certainly it was cheaper than buying a new one, but I was Led to believe it was a quick fix that only they were qualified to do, and I actually bought the you know drank the Kool Aid on that one. I sent it to them. They said they were going to charge for an hour, and they charged for two and a half. So, and you know, cost fifty bucks to ship it. It used to be right down the street. It used to be you know I was in Lawndale, and they were in Tustin. So yeah, you could have just walked it over almost. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Channel Two came back noisier than Channel One. Oh no! Are you going to send it back or just 
use chat. Right. I, I'd have to send it back for another, you know, put it up, put it on the card again, send it back. And um, I'd have to find my record, but I think it's out of their 90-day warranty now. Oh, man. So is that something that you noticed right away, or, or you got I it? I suspected it right. You know, I, I checked, I scoped it out when I first got it, and I tried to listen closely, and I made myself believe it was a problem with, with, the, with the power supply and some of the cabling in the back. And after I went back and changed everything, I discovered that, no, it really was noisier. Ah, that's too bad. Not exactly the outcome that you want to have uh, happen. But it's, it is functional. So uh, I'll, I'll eventually get it back up to tip-top shape. Yeah. Well, why don't we go ahead and get into our official topic today, which is recording guitar. Both Jeff and I are guitarists, so I thought that that would be a good topic to get us back into the podcasting habit, if you will. We can reveal all our bad habits to everybody. Exactly. (laughs) First, let's start with electric guitar, and then we can move into acoustic guitar a little bit later. But I think with electric guitar, of course, with the advent of all the different digital modelers out there, there's really two choices. You can do the uh, DI on your guitars or, or mic'd cabinet. So what's your preferred method of recording guitars if you had... Every option, you know, if you had a, a good DI path and also, you know, a good cabinet. And my pref- my preferred option uh, with with restrictions lifted is always going to be cabinets and microphones. Okay. I like to use microphones as EQ, and I like to use the room as EQ. And, you know, it's just more fun to work in the physical world and actually push air, I think. Yeah. Um, but uh, being a practical gentleman, I do have a Pod XT Pro. And so uh, I also don't have many of the cabinets and heads that it features. So if if I don't have access to the combo amps or the head that I want to use, then I'm not af- I'm not afraid of using the pod. I just think you can tell if you work direct exclusively. The model the uh, the modelers are of course improving a lot. So and I'll, I'll backpedal on every single thing I say about this, but I really am a firm believer of if it sounds right, it's right. Yeah. I agree. So, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think there's really too many wrong ways to do things, especially if it makes something sound unusual. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. I, I myself, I prefer to mic cabinets as well. Um, I've noticed that you know when you're dealing with DI'd guitar, um, it seems like you have to, or at least I have to work a little bit harder to get that realism that you would, you know, that's pretty easy to obtain with a, a mic and a cabinet, and what I've been doing lately is I'll actually add a slight real short room uh, reverb or ambience to the direct guitar sound just to give it a little more body. And that has really helped to, to get those tracks to fit in better with the mix. And you add that, you add that how via plugins? Uh, via plugin. Yeah. yeah. You know, one of the other issues with the, with the DI stuff, it seems like I've, I've worked on a couple projects where the guitars have been DI'd and it seems like there's a tendency to maybe go overboard on some of the effects that they print on the track and uh, having everything be in stereo, which, you know, if you have a mix and every single source is in stereo, it's just going to be a disaster. Of, of course, you can, you know, choose one of the channels to use. But in my mind, when I'm recording, I like to, I like to kind of plan ahead and know what I'm doing with the instruments as I'm recording. Um, so if I 
you know, I'm doing a, a distorted guitar part, I'll do it in mono and maybe double track it. You know, if I'm doing a clean guitar part, a lot of times I'll do it in stereo, but... Well, you and I have both worked with a particular client that, that loves the guitar party, you know, build up the orchestra of guitars, and every one of those 13 guitars will probably be in stereo and have a room mic associated with it. And so, you know, I've gotten a little bit more efficient at stripping out stereo pairs and throwing things away. Yeah, and you really have to if if you're if you hope to have any sort of clarity and focus in the final mix. It's like you really do need to be selective. You can't have every every guitar track be on 11 because that would just turn into into mud and uh, would not serve the song at all. In defense of that, it's always nice to have options too. So as long as everybody's happy with the mix engineer making decisions, you know, you can give me too much and that's okay. Yeah, yeah, it's better to have too much than not enough and go, oh, I wish I had that one other track or that one other, you know, uh, microphone setup. Because, you know, once once the musicians are gone, you're kind of stuck with whatever you recorded. So options are definitely good. Um, as far as miking up cabinets, what are you, some of your favorite microphones that you use? You know, tried and true. Uh, the SM57 is really, it's the go-to mic for miking a cabinet, isn't it? I mean, it's just... It fits that part of the frequency response curve. It, it captures the mid-range tone, you know, between uh, 1200 and 1800 that you really want out of an electric guitar, generally speaking. So that's that's always at hand. On a project that I worked on in the mid-90s, where we were actually deliberately going for kind of a progressive art pop, very glassy, early 80s, somewhat police-ish type of a sound, I remember really liking a combination of a large diaphragm condenser, which at the time would have been probably the AT4033, and a PL80. So, you know, a very hypey, dynamic microphone and a really a pretty clean condenser microphone and mic'd them outside the cones left and right on a Roland Jazz Chorus 120. And, you know, it made for a really nice, shimmery, wide sound, and it didn't need to be double-tracked. It was, you know, it filled a lot of space. But at the same time, it, it carved out different tones on each mic, so it, it gave the sound some character from left to right that I thought was nice. And you were probably using the built-in chorus on the amp as well, too, I imagine? Yes. Yeah. And, yeah, and you know, of course, you can really exaggerate that and set it ridiculously wide. So, yes, it'll actually beat left and right in the headphones. And, of course, there were other things going on, and that was a five-piece band, so there was another guitarist, too. And because the PL-80 tended to be purposely darker than the than the condenser the condenser was favored on the side that that guitar was going to be commonly used on and then the other guitar player i think played through a marshall head and we mic'd that up with a 57 i think for me i've used the the sure sm57 as well although lately i've kind of been shying away from that microphone the project that i worked on most recently where i was recording guitars was my own and i don't know if for whatever reason that the 57 just wasn't working on my guitar or I just kind of got tired of hearing it, <laughs> hearing it on guitar tracks. Um, but what I ended up doing was for a lot of the distorted guitar tracks, I used my AKG 414, which is a, it's a mid nineties model. So I think it's, it's the, what the B U L S model. Right. It's probably exactly the same one as mine. Yeah, probably. And I just really, I don't know that mic it has a really great kind of 
mm, kind of hi-fi sound to it that just sounds great on certain um, distorted guitar tracks. So, How close were you to the grill with that microphone? You know, typically I'm about a foot away, although on some of the tracks I was actually like four to five feet away. And which is, you know, you think ah, that's not going to sound good at all. But actually on those tracks, the sound was really focused, even though I was a couple feet back. And basically what I did was I would, would just listen into the room and I just found the sweet spot where the guitar sounded the fullest and set the mic right there. And it worked out really well. I, I think that's actually probably one of my favorite guitar s- tones that I got on the album was when I did that. Well, I would imagine that that'd probably be more like what the guitar sounds to your ears in the room. With, with that kind of distance, you're going to give it enough space in the room. Yeah, exa- that's, exactly. That's what, what your one ear would hear. Yeah, exactly. That's going to, the, the guitar sound would be fully developed at that point instead of, you know, maybe just kind of filtering in on a couple frequencies when you're right up on the grill. And so, those, close, those close mic sounds, I think, are really good for recorded music, but they're, you know, it's hyper-reality. Yes, Definitely. You know, that's not really what somebody would hear standing off of a stage listening to that amp playing off the stage. And, and you know, any guitarist will tell you that if, you know, depending on where you stick your ear in proximity to the speaker, I mean, the tone does change a little bit. Oh, sure. So, you know, the farther back you get, you're going to get a more accurate representation of the whole speaker as, as opposed to just, you know, a certain point on the speaker cone. That may be why I'm liking that sound right now because it just sounds a little more natural to my ear. But so I'll do I'll use that mic, the AKG uh, 414, for a distorted guitar. And then if I'm doing like a clean guitar track, I'm actually using uh, Blue Microphones, the Ball microphone, which is okay. You know, it looks like a ball and it's blue. And so I have two of those, and and. Those microphones sound, have a very interesting kind of phasey sound to them that works really well on clean guitar. Doesn't work quite so well on distorted guitar. Um, I've used it on voice too a little bit, and it it as an effect mic. I wouldn't track like a whole vocal track with it, but for certain spots, it has a cool sound to it. So I'll use I'll use those two microphones for stereo, basically at the edge of the cabinets, about a foot back. And, you know, I'm miking up a 212 cabinet and that puts about three feet between the mics and you get a really nice stereo spread that, that sounds really natural and yet doesn't, um, you know, it doesn't collapse if you pop it into mono. So that's been working out really well. And what else? Uh, also, I have a, a shiny box ribbon mic. Uh, what is it? A shiny box 46 that I like for guitar for distorted guitar as well. You know that had opportunity to use those over at Gravity. Yeah, the uh, ribbon mics are really very, fond of using ribbons on on guitar cabinets. Yeah, they, they sound wonderful, and, and and you know, like we were talking about with the four fourteen, it's a really natural sound. You know, if you have a couple of guitar tracks going, say one with the fifty seven, and then one one with a ribbon mic, they really complement themselves well because the ribbon mic is so much smoother than the fifty seven. Now, where do you like to put the ribbon? particularly for loud, distorted guitar. The ribbons I've used have been fairly delicate ribbons, you know, thinking of the, uh, the, uh, the R82, AEA R82. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think the, the ribbon microphones that are being built now, they're kind of touting that they're a lot more robust than the ribbon microphones of yesteryear. But even still, I've, I, I tend to put the ribbon mic probably 
six inches to a foot back from the speaker. Um, you know, I'm not putting it right on the grill. Just another basic thing, I would think, if I were if I were actually listening and I hadn't done a lot of recording, I'd probably find it useful to know where somebody took a basic microphone, like we're talking about the 414, if it was up close to the grill, or that 4033, the PL80, or 57, and ask, where do you put the microphone? Because a lot of people will look through the grill and see the horn and think you just point it straight at the horn. Well, if you want a very bright sound, that's where you would Everybody point it. For punk rock, yeah, yeah. If, you want to, uh, if you want to be in the Sex Pistols. Yeah, I think as a general starting point, I will put the microphone midway between you know the center of the cone and the edge of the speaker, and then listen to it over the monitors. And then if I want a little darker sound, I'll move it closer to the edge of the speaker. If I want a little brighter sound, I'll move it closer to the cone. Particularly when using a stereo amplifier like the JC120, for example, for the clean stuff, I, I tend to place about the same spot as you're describing between the center of the cone and the edge of the speaker. Mm-hmm. But if I, if I want to go wide with the single cabinet without double tracking, I find it's nice to just start rotating the microphone, you know, rotate the capsule so it's starting to look toward the edge of the, the speaker box rather than closer to the cone on the speaker. Yeah, so instead of like looking at the microphone like at a 45 degree angle, or I guess head on, you'd cant it out a little bit at an angle. Right. It's a pretty effective means of EQ and darkening up a tone. Definitely. And that's actually a good point. We've, you've kind of mentioned using microphones as EQ before. I think that's a good point to mention that um, I think we're, we're both on, on the same uh, wavelength as far as trying to get the sound as close to what you're hearing in your head, you know, by using the microphone. You know, of course, you can record record a track and EQ it later, but to my ears, if you're able to get the tone that you want with the microphone, you know, by moving the placement, it just sounds a lot more natural and the mix seems to come together a lot more quickly. You'll have plenty of other stuff to fix in the mix anytime. <laughs> exactly. You work on it, so one less thing is always great. I'll always try the weirdest thing that the space allows me. You know, I remember the last time I went to Ann Arbor to record a band, uh, we recorded in a basement. It was a treated basement, so it sounded pretty decent. Uh, but it was also, you know, it was a residence, so they had a laundry room. And I found one of my favorite places to mic a guitar was from a microphone inside the dryer. Nice. It just, you know, it just had the perfect spacey oddball ring to it that worked for a couple of tunes. Yeah, that's cool. Hideously ugly for everything else. But. So was that the only microphone you had on that guitar track, or did you kind of use it to supplement a close mic? Yes, uh, I did use it as the only guitar or the only microphone on on one particular guitar track, but and it was a natural type of thing where it was sort of a theatrical piece where the the character the singer is describing is is often alone and and, and very distant from everything. So that guitar kind of creeps in from the background and it feels like it's very reverbed. But a lot of that was coming out of the shell that the microphone was listening through. Right. Cool. Yeah. So you're going for a specific effect that way. As far well, here, here here's another another thing that comes up as far as tracking um, recording guitar. Do you like to print with effects or without effects? Yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> to which which part of the question A or B? <laughs> Both parts of the question. Uh, there are times you you don't just don't want to have to mess with anything anymore. You so say we're going to make a decision. This is what the song is supposed to sound like. Write it now. 
But uh, in the modern recording environment, when you're often dealing with people who are recording in different studios and sending tracks to the mixer, then I, in those type of situations, I tend to think it's better to print dry. Mm-hmm. Print dry and maybe record a, a scratch or provide, provide a rough mix with printed effects on it. So here's the dry guitar. Here's what we were thinking of doing with it. And it's got lots of flange and reverb and stereo delay on it. But especially, especially with things like reverbs and delays, it's nice to have them in time if yes, definitely. you're working with a band that plays to a click. Actually, I think if you're, if, if you're working with a live band where everybody does play together and everybody feels everything together, that's the type of situation where you want to go ahead and print the effects. Yeah, I would tend to agree. Yeah, I think my, kind of my general rule is that if the effect is integral to the part, for instance, if, if you know, you're recording the edge or whatever, obviously you are going to want to track his guitars with delay because that is a huge, not only you know, is the delay part of his sound, but it's actually part of the part. I mean, he's you know, using the, the delays to create the guitar part. So in a case like that... Right, you know, that where the delay is playing part of the guitar. Exactly. Part. Yeah, you definitely want to print that one because that, that could be difficult. Well... You know, it could be difficult to duplicate when you're mixing the track, and it also it's going to affect how the guitar player is playing the guitar part. If he if he's used to hearing that delay, and all of a sudden you're asking him to track it dry, you know that's just going to kill the vibe for him. Yeah, I do think if you're going to print dry for a player who's working with effects like that, you know, an Andy Summers, Alex Lifeson, Edge, anybody that really relies on those type of effects. You've got to at least provide them in the headphones for the player to work with. Yeah, I would. I would. Yeah, definitely agree. Because you, I mean, obviously, all this comes down to is you know our job is to get a performance, and hopefully, the sound is is going to not screw everything up. So, yeah, it comes down to it. If the player needs to hear something to, you know, for them to get a good take, you need to take care of that because because that's what it's all about. It's all about the music, you know, when it comes down to it. One thing I was going to mention about recording direct, I mean, there, there are definitely types of music. You know, I'm thinking of bands like Simple Minds or even a fair amount of reggae music where the guitar was recorded just plugged directly into the board, and that's that dry, spanky sound. And as tacky as it sounds to contemporary ears, you know, for some things, it's, it's appropriate that way, and that, that goes back to the nothing is really wrong theory. For some things, it's exactly right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, if for some reason, if you're working on a song and you're miking up the cabinets and it's just not working and you have the option of going, you know, DI'd, give it a shot because maybe that'll pull the song together. You never know. And it certainly gives you the option of trying everything, including the kitchen sink afterward. Yeah, you can reamp to your uh, heart's content. Another thing we should probably talk about is double tracking guitar parts. I don't know if that's something that you do on occasion or do all the time or sometimes, but I I seem to double track distorted guitar parts a lot more than clean guitar parts. I don't know why, but that just... Well, I, I think that's probably because if you have very heavy, heavily distorted guitar parts and you've only got one of them and you're trying to create stereo space in a mix, you can throw yourself out of balance pretty fast if you don't have something that aggressive or muscular going on on the other side. Yeah, that's true. And so that yeah, balance is valuable. Definitely. And a lot of times too, I think 
there is more of a tendency that if a guitarist is going to be playing with chorusing or some sort of stereo effect, it's more than likely going to be on the clean sound and probably not so common to be on the distorted sound. One thing I'll do when double tracking distorted guitar parts that is really helpful is to not use the same exact sound for both tracks to change something, change the guitar, change the pickups, different mic, one microphone closer or farther. It's not really going to give you as pleasing an effect if you use the same exact sound. What I'll do a lot of times is, you know, one of the tracks will be what the guitarist has set up as far as, you know, this is the chorus guitar part you know he has the distortion set however he wants to great we'll track it like that and then for when we go to double track it we'll turn down the distortion a little bit so we have a little cleaner sound and that helps a lot with the definition of the pick attack and that works really well and those sounds can overlap somewhat too i i do like the idea of having a little bit more definition on the parts because in rock and roll everything can turn to mud pretty quickly I guess in terms of how much I double parts. I mean, when I was when I was recording more progressive music, yeah, it was it was everything in there, double everything to get the biggest, widest, most cinematic sound you could manage to create. But the more I've been working on just rock and roll, you know, you take a Kinks record for example. That stuff's not double tracked. The early stuff, it's the band in a room, and you hear Dave's guitar and Ray's guitar and the piano player and the percussionist and the drummer. And there's a period of that that I enjoy, and it's fun to record that way. It tends to, you know, it, just by its nature, it tends to go more quickly. And sound right, it sounds right faster than the other way. So I think there's something to be said for, for either side of things. I still like to, to orchestrate and, and make really lush-sounding palettes of sound and color like something that's really immediate and direct and just grabs you and hits you in the right place in the gut. And I think really uh, what it comes down to really is the band and the style of music. You know, if you have a band with two guitarists, you're probably not going to need to double track any of the guitars because just by the nature of, you know, both guitarists playing in the band, hopefully they've worked out guitar parts that are complementary to each other that, you know, give the the overall sound that they're shooting for. But if it's a three-piece... You might want to double track some of the guitars just to help fill out the sound a little bit more and you know make it sound like a an album. Yeah, there are a lot of times when that's absolutely the best thing to do is to fill out that sound and make you know make it more real than reality. Uh, and other times, you know, just too much is too much. There again, there's no rule. It's worth trying. But anytime you try something, particularly with personalities that can be evolved in a band, you have to be wary of people becoming too attached. And so if you have somebody play a second track and they did something a little bit different, they think, oh, that's really cool. And you listen to it, and now the track's too cluttered. Or, you know, something important gets lost. You can't hear the counter melody in the bass, or particularly something in the vocal just gets stomped on, or there's a second or something like that. You know, you've got to be willing to say, well, we tried that, but we need to let it go. Yeah, and that's tough, too, because a lot of times, yeah, like you said, players will get very attached to what they've laid down, and... You know, when you go back to mix the song later, it, that part may not be serving the, the, the song, and you just hope that they're willing to... This is not, yeah, that's another uh, discussion entirely, though. It's, uh, 
you, you can't really be, you can't put yourself in that position, I think, as the engineer where you tell people that, that they need to let parts go. I, I, but I do think, yeah, generally speaking, unless you're the producer uh, or it's your studio and people are asking you what your opinion is on their arrangements, it's, it's generally best overall not to tell a band how to arrange their songs. Yeah, really, it comes down ultimately to whatever type of relationship you have with the band and if you're just being hired as the engineer or kind of the engineer, producer, you know, wearing all the hats, you need to be, you yeah, know. If you're in that role because of your experience and you're asked for it or that's your that's your role, then by all means do it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but don't, it's probably not good to be telling people, hey, you need to cut this out if that's not really what, what you're there for. If you're just there to to set up microphones and hit record, it's probably best to keep your mouth shut. Just grin and bear it. Yeah, save it for your solo record. I think we'll go ahead and wrap up our discussion about recording electric guitar for now. We'll touch on recording acoustic guitar at a future episode. But before we closed out the episode, I wanted to address a question that we received. I put it out on Twitter that we were going to be recording tonight. And... Doug Triangle X from Twitter had a question about sound cards. His price range is $100 to $200. He's looking for a best value in the field. Looks like he's looking for two channel, uh, two channels or more over Firewire, and obviously with decent sounding um, converters. Now he actually sent me two messages, and before he put the the price in there, I was going to recommend the the Apogee Duet, which is five hundred dollars. It's FireWire. It's Mac only. I I don't know if Doug is on a Mac or a PC, but obviously since he got back to me and said that his price range was a hundred to two hundred dollars, that seems to rule out all of the FireWire interfaces. So he would be looking at a USB type interface. I mean, I don't know what a Motu 2408 would go for these days. Oh, yeah, yeah, go the used route? Yes, oh, absolutely, a Craigslist, eBay, whatever, anywhere like that. Your dollar can always go further. Yeah, that's a really good point, and that's going to give you quite a bit more inputs and flexibility. Um, I was going to actually recommend, because um, a friend of mine has the M-Audio, uh, what is it, M-Audio Fast Track Pro, and he's been pretty happy with it. It's a USB interface with two microphone preamps on the front. And I think it also comes bundled with some software. Oh, yeah, Ableton Live Lite. So that might be a good option. You know, I think really... And what's the price? What's oh, the, yeah, the price on that is 200 bucks. So that's right in the price range that he's looking at. Without doing any research, I could, we could always follow up. You're supposed to know these things off the top of your head, Jeff. Yeah, Come I on. realize that. But yeah, I have my... <laughs> I'm not buying enough. <laughs> you know what you're talking about? Uh, picking up the app or the yeah the Apogee Duet. I demoed that for K-pop magazine, and those converters were smoking. I loved them. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to recommend it because I use the Ensemble, which the Duet is supposed to you know share right. the same converters and mic preamps. And I love my Ensemble. It's a great sounding box. So that's why I was going to recommend that. Uh, but that might, you know, he might be able to find one, you know, on Craigslist or something for, I don't know, 300 bucks maybe. I don't know. Maybe. I think those things are holding their value pretty well. So I think it's probably going to be double the budget that Doug is talking about. But it never hurts, it never hurts to, to 
put a feeler out and just try to keep your eyes on it. Yeah, and it might be something that might be worth, you know, waiting three, four, six months to save up a little more cash and get some really nice converters that something that you're going to be able to use for years and not not regret it at all. Well, I think uh, that was our one question for this time. Um, we did also receive another question about acoustic guitar, but we'll save that for when we talk about recording acoustic guitar. Jeff, how can people find more about you? They can look on the World Wide Web, and I've got a lot of information available at marathonrecords.com. And if anyone has any questions or comments, the best way to get in touch with us, well, me directly, and I can forward any questions to Jeff, is by emailing podcast at finleysound.com, or you can just go to finleysound.com and click on the contact link. Feel free to comment on the podcast episode, and you can also follow Finley Sound, that's F-I-N-L-E-Y-S-O-U-N-D on Twitter, and I plan to make some announcements on Twitter when we're coming up with some upcoming episodes so people can get us some questions, and hopefully we can answer them in a somewhat intelligent fashion. So I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Jeff, thanks for joining me. We'll look forward forward to next time. Exactly, which will hopefully be in less than two years, 10 months, and nine days. Thanks, everyone. Catch you next time.